Do you ever feel frustrated with church? How about people in the church? Do you ever find any of them frustrating? Well, the Apostle Paul had one church in particular that caused him no end of frustration. That church was in Corinth. And this morning we're going to begin looking at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. This letter may well be the most neglected of all Paul's letters. Now, a few phrases in the letter are very famous, such as treasure in jars of clay and thorn in the flesh. We might recognize those, but the letter as a whole tends to be not so familiar to us. And yet, this is probably the most personal of all Paul's letters. This is where he reveals the most about himself and his own experiences and emotions. We'll see some of that already in our passage this morning. And this is certainly the most intense of all Paul's letters, especially in the last three chapters. It's very clear that Paul is pretty worked up as he writes parts of this letter. And judging by what we know of the church in Corinth, it's not surprising that Paul was worked up. It's easy for you and me today to have an idealized, romantic picture of the early church. But if we pay attention to the New Testament, we discover there were serious problems, even in the early days of the church. And of all the New Testament churches, none had more serious problems than Corinth. For example, in Paul's first letter, we read about problems of severe disunity sexual immorality, distortion of the gospel, particularly denying the resurrection. We read about the misuse of spiritual gifts, especially what are often called the charismatic gifts. Paul visited the church in Corinth several times. He spent quite a bit of time there, and he wrote at least four letters to this church. Yet history tells us the church in Corinth continued to have problems long after Paul's death. These men and women were highly resistant to change. So when you and I might feel frustrated with our church, this letter helps us to see that change and spiritual growth don't happen overnight. God works patiently, and we have to be patient too. It's always dangerous to try to sum up a whole letter in one phrase. But in this letter, there is a clear recurring theme. It's like a melodic line that keeps coming back in varied ways. We could sum it up as our weakness, God's power. In this letter, Paul wants to teach us about true strength. What does it look like to be a successful Christian? or a successful church. Recently, a well-known American pastor called British Christians cowards. Why? Because, he said, our churches are so small. People are not flocking to be baptized in our churches the way they are in his church. So are big churches evidence that the people in them are courageous? 
If a pastor has a small church, is he a coward and a failure? Well, in this letter, Paul helps us think about those questions and questions like them. And we'll learn that Paul himself was being labeled a coward and a failure. There were plenty of people who didn't see Paul as a successful Christian. And it turns out Paul's okay with that. In this letter, he doesn't want to convince us about his own strength. He wants us to think carefully about our weakness and God's power. So if you haven't already turned there, open your Bible, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In the Church Bible, that's page 1158. And then follow with me as I read the first 11 verses of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf, for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. This is God's word. It's not hard to tell that the main theme of this passage is comfort. The word occurs ten times in those eleven verses. Paul wants us to understand where comfort comes from, and he also wants us to pass it on to be channels of God's comfort. And Paul begins by talking about God, the source of comfort in verses 1 to 3. Now we'll learn later in this letter that some in the church were questioning Paul's credentials. He didn't seem to be a high-powered, high-achieving leader. Maybe they thought they needed to look elsewhere for leadership. But in verse 1, Paul says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The basic meaning of apostle is messenger. 
So Paul is a messenger of Jesus Christ. He spreads the good news about Jesus. But the word apostle can have also a much narrower meaning in the New Testament. Often it's used to refer to those who had been given a special commission from Jesus. That group was limited to the 11 disciples, that's the 12 minus Judas, plus Paul. You may remember Paul hadn't been a disciple of Jesus during Jesus' time on earth. In fact, in the early days of the church, Paul was actually an enemy of the church. He was trying to stamp it out. But the risen Jesus appeared to Paul and not only changed Paul's heart, he gave Paul a special commission. Paul was to be Jesus' chosen instrument to carry God's name to Jews and Gentiles. So Paul is one of many messengers of the good news about Jesus. But he's also one of a very select group. He has a unique part to play. And he's been given that special part by God himself. He's an apostle by the will of God. It wasn't something Paul dreamt up for himself. So the opening line of this letter is not just a standard way to begin. It's reminding the Corinthians of something they may have begun to doubt. Paul speaks and writes and ministers with God's authority. No minister today has the authority Paul had. There are lots of messengers today who tell the good news about Jesus. But today there are no apostles in the sense that Paul and the disciples were apostles. So today, you hear the authoritative voice of an apostle, not by listening to me, but by listening to the words of the Bible. Paul mentions one of his fellow workers, Timothy. The church in Corinth would have known Timothy well. And then Paul says, this letter is not only for the church in Corinth, It's also for all the saints throughout Achaia. That was a fairly big region. If Paul was writing today, the equivalent might be to the church of God in Pelsol, together with all the saints throughout the Midlands. It's very important for us to see that because throughout this letter, we'll find Paul writing to a very specific situation. But Paul believes that what he has to say is valuable for all the saints to hear. And saints just means God's people. The men and women he has made holy through Christ. The things Paul says might be prompted by the specific situation in Corinth. But they're important for all Christians to hear. In verse 2, Paul wishes these Christians grace and peace. He loves these people. They keep him awake at night. They cause him no end of stress, but he loves them all the same. He wants them to experience grace and peace. And he points them to the source of that grace and peace. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace and peace come to us from the Father through the Son. As far as Paul is concerned, there is only one very specific way we can connect to God. 
Today, people try to connect to God through a whole host of different ways. Mary, Muhammad, Buddha, Mother Earth, or crystals, or sometimes just by looking inside themselves. But Paul is clear there's only one way. God's grace and peace come to us through Jesus Christ. And then Paul focuses in on something else that comes to us from the Father through Jesus. Comfort. In verse 3, he is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Notice that Paul sees compassion and comfort as two different things. They're connected, but they're not the same thing. It's possible to feel compassion for someone, but not be able to comfort them. One night last week, Elijah had a pain in his ear. And I had compassion for him, but I wasn't able to comfort him. The fact that I had sympathy for him didn't transfer into comfort for him. The pain went on and his wailing went on. Then Megan came home and sorted it all out. Here Paul says, God not only has compassion for us, he also provides comfort for us. We could define comfort as strengthening in the face of some trial, refreshment in the middle of some ordeal. Comfort doesn't always mean that the pain goes away. It means we're given encouragement and strength in the midst of the pain. The pain goes on, but we stop wailing in despair, or at least we wail a little less than we were. We've received comfort in our trial. We have new strength to face our trial. So God's comfort doesn't just consist in him saying, I'm so sorry, I wish I could help you. Often that's all you and I are capable of. But God can, and he does, give compassion and comfort. And Paul says God gives all comfort. That means every kind of comfort. In every situation, he can provide appropriate comfort. He's the God of every variety of comfort. That's the first thing Paul wants to kneel down for us in this passage. Because he's going to talk about our part in comforting others. But he wants us to be clear, first of all, where comfort comes from. God is the source of comfort. But then in verses 4 to 7, Paul talks about God's people, channels of God's comfort. In verse 4, Paul says, When I have trouble, God comforts me so that I can pass on his comfort to you in your troubles. Verse 4, God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. What Paul is saying is that God's comfort rarely, if ever, comes to us as a lightning bolt out of heaven. God does not zap us with strength and refreshment. He brings those things to us through other people. Now, we might read verse 4 and say, but it looks like he did zap Paul with comfort, and then Paul passed it on to others. 
Certainly Paul doesn't explain here how he received comfort. But over in chapter 7, he does. After mentioning a tough situation he'd been in, Paul says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. In that situation, a visit from Titus, in fact, Titus himself, was God's channel of comfort to Paul. So here in chapter 1, we are to suppose that the pattern was the same for Paul as it is for everyone else. God's comfort comes to him through others, and he passes it on to others. What we're being told is that God works through human relationships, specifically the relationships of his people. In the Garden of Eden, God said it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And it still isn't good. We might ask, well, does that mean God isn't enough for us? No, it means that his normal means of providing for us is through other people. Does that mean then Christians in solitary confinement are cut off from God's help? No. It means God's normal means of providing for us is through other people. He's not limited to working through people, but that is his normal method. If you or I isolate ourselves from other Christians, we shouldn't expect God to zap us with comfort. That's not how he has chosen to do things. If we forsake Christian fellowship, we're cutting ourselves off from the main channel of God's comfort. And actually, we're being presumptuous. We're expecting God to comfort us through some other channel. And yet often, when Christians are facing difficulties, the first thing they do is stop coming to church. They sit at home fuming and lamenting that God isn't comforting them. Where are you, God? Have you forsaken me? No, he expects us to be in fellowship with other Christians. That's the channel he will use to comfort us. And then the corresponding truth is that God expects us to be willing channels of comfort ourselves. As God comforts us, we are to comfort others with the comfort we have received from God. I read recently about a pastor who was involved in designing a church building. And he designed the building wide and thin. So a little bit different, not too much different, but a little bit different from our shape of building. It still had the pulpit in the middle at the front like we do. But the seating was in a semicircle, a wide semicircle around the pulpit. And apparently wherever you sat in that building you were able to see both the pulpit and the faces of three-quarters of the congregation. Now, I realize that has potential drawbacks. There are benefits to everyone looking straight ahead. But that pastor was trying to work a biblical truth into the architecture of that church building. The truth he was trying to set in bricks and mortar, in a way, is the truth 
that it's not just me and God. It's me and God and my brothers and sisters around me. In that church, as men and women heard God's word, as they were ministered to by God's word, they could also see the people they were to minister to. And just to be clear, I don't have any desire to change the shape of our church building. But I do want us to get this point. God does not just minister to you for your own benefit. He ministers to you for the benefit of all these people around you. That's why it's so tragic when professing Christians opt out of church. Either because they think the church has nothing to give to them, or maybe they think they have nothing to give the church. That's tragic because the church is a place for each one of us to give and receive. That's how God has set it up. Paul mentions troubles in verse 4. And we should be clear on the kind of troubles Paul is talking about. These are difficulties that come to us as we're trying to live the Christian life. They're not difficulties that come because we're living in unrepented sin. God will not comfort us while we're defying him. If we are shaking our fist at God, we shouldn't expect him to comfort us through other Christians or any other way. Paul is talking about pressures or circumstances or illness or opposition that come to faithful Christians. Men and women who certainly aren't perfect, but who are committed to listening to God and obeying Him. Then look at verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. What does Paul mean by the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives? Well, when we talk about the sufferings of Christ, we normally mean his sufferings on the cross. On the cross, Christ suffered as a once-for-all-time sacrifice for our sins. Those sufferings are done. None of the sufferings you or I go through are helping to pay for our sin. Jesus has already done that. The payment is complete. So if Paul's not talking about Jesus' sufferings on the cross, what does he mean here? I think the meaning is the sufferings we face for being associated with Christ. Another way to put it would be the sufferings we face for the sake of Christ. If you and I belong to Christ and follow him, and if we seek to serve him, we are going to experience some suffering. If we follow the Savior who suffered, we will experience some suffering ourselves. It might be physical or mental or circumstantial. It might be social pressure, marginalization. We'll all have some suffering. And again, those sufferings are not helping to pay for our sin. Jesus has done that. Our sufferings are part of being associated with him. But the flip side of that is the comfort that comes to us through Christ. 
Yes, sufferings flow into our lives because of Christ, but equally because of Christ, comfort overflows out of our lives to others. At home, we have one of those water filter jugs. I don't know if we really need one. I've never tried drinking our tap water. I think I've just assumed that filtered water is going to taste better. So we pour our bitter water into the top of the jug. It filters its way through, and then sweeter water comes out from the spout. And that's similar to the picture Paul is giving us here. Bitterness in some form comes into our lives, bitter experiences. But along with that comes comfort. So what flows out of our lives to others is not bitterness, but strength and encouragement. So in verse 6, Paul can step back and look at the whole process. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Paul says, if we are distressed, when Paul suffers, he knows it's not pointless. The bitterness that's been poured into his life will ultimately result in comfort and salvation for others. Maybe not immediately, but at some point. Then Paul says, if we are comforted, when Paul receives comfort in his suffering, he knows it's not just for himself. It's also for the benefit of others, so that they can keep going when they suffer. And so Paul says in verse 7, and our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. God's people are channels of God's comfort. Now, how do we apply this? I think we find this very difficult to apply for two reasons. First of all, many of us have been on the receiving end of so-called comfort from other Christians, and we'd rather they hadn't bothered. Sometimes people are perfectly well-meaning But the comfort they try to offer us is really no comfort at all. Maybe you can think of a point when you'd lost a loved one. Or maybe you were struggling with your singleness. Or struggling with your marriage. Or your children. Or your lack of children. And you received some not very comforting comfort from another Christian. Maybe from a whole lot of Christians. And those experiences make us skeptical when we listen to Paul here. We might feel we've had more than enough comfort from other believers. And then we have a second difficulty when we try to apply these verses. It's connected to the first one. If we know what it's like to receive unhelpful comfort, we can be very hesitant about trying to give any ourselves. We don't want to fall into the same mistake that others have made with us. And so we end up just avoiding the suffering person. We read these verses and our response is, I don't know how to give comfort to others. You feel like I felt when Elijah had his sore ear. 
You feel sympathy. But what strength and refreshment can you really give the person? You feel compassion, but how are you going to give comfort? Well, one helpful thing for us to realize is that most of the time, you and I don't have the wisdom or ability to comfort someone. We can say comforting words to them, but we can't actually give them the kind of comfort we're talking about here. Strength and refreshment. That was Paul's first point. God is the source of comfort, not us. And you might say, well, okay, but you've just told me I'm to be a channel of God's comfort. How does it help me to know I'm not able to comfort people? I think it's helpful because it frees us from thinking we need to give wise advice or solve everyone's problem. Most of the time, we haven't got a clue what they should do. We don't have a clue what God's doing in their life. We don't need to try and make something up. But we can listen to the person who's suffering. Knowing that someone cares enough to listen to us can be a big comfort. Surely that's at least part of what Paul means in Galatians when he talks about carrying each other's burdens. We probably can't take the burden away, but we can share some of the weight of the burden. And if the person doesn't want to talk, we can sit with them or walk with them. We can provide comfort through companionship. We can pray for the person and we can let them know that we're praying for them. All of that is much harder work than dishing out a few words of wisdom at the back of church. But we're more likely to end up being channels of God's comfort. And there is more we can say about this. Because in verses 8 to 11, Paul relates a personal experience of God's comfort. And Paul begins by being very honest about his own weakness. Verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. Paul is using we and us to refer to himself here. And he doesn't go into detail about his hardships in Asia. He may be referring to opposition from enemies, maybe even physical violence. We know that Paul did face that. Or it may have been a physical illness he went through. He had plenty of that as well. Whatever the hardship was, it was more than Paul could handle. Maybe we have an idea that Paul was the church's equivalent to Clark Kent. Whenever difficulties come along, Paul turns into Superman. The bullets bounce off him, the tanks get thrown to the side, and the bad guys get punted up into orbit. But that's not the picture the New Testament gives us of Paul. And Paul does not present himself as the superhero who's climbed every mountain of difficulty. 
and forded every stream of suffering. Paul is completely honest about his own weakness and inability. In this particular hardship, Paul was sure he was going to die. In our hearts, he says, we felt the sentence of death. So when it comes to comforting others, Paul does not take the approach some of us like to take. He does not present himself as the man of steel, who leaps over problems in a single bound or with a single prayer. Paul is very honest about his own weakness. And he's an example for us to follow. So long as a group of Christians all keep acting like they're supermen or superwomen, there will be very little of God's comfort shared around. Those who struggle are going to feel they're not proper Christians. Why does no one else ever seem to struggle around here? But the truth is, none of us are superheroes. We all struggle. And it's a good thing when we admit that, like Paul did. Honesty about human weakness is very important. But it's not the end of the story. Because Paul goes on to talk about the reality of God's power. We'll pick up in the middle of verse 9. But this happened, those were the hardships in Asia, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Honesty about human weakness is good, but it really only takes us so far. It only prepares us for the bit that's actually helpful to us. It prepares us to accept the truth that God is powerful. A church that's full of superheroes is a fake. It's just a big act. But it's equally true that a church full of despairing, hopeless people is a church that's missing the point. A church that isn't pointing to God's reality and power is a pointless church. We gather here every Sunday as weak, powerless people. And then we lift up our eyes to God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We hear his word together. And it tells us he is the God who raises the dead. Even the grave couldn't defeat him. And the problems in our lives won't defeat him either. We sing to one another about God's power and his love for his people. We speak to him in prayer. And we are reminded that he is our hope. A church that doesn't do that is really a pointless church. And it might seem like a simplistic answer to say God is both loving and powerful. He's the God that we can rely on. That might seem like a simplistic answer. But it's the only true answer there is. When you are beyond your ability to endure, the person sitting beside you can't give you the strength you need. I can't deliver you. Only God can. 
And incidentally, deliverance or rescue in the Bible often means that God brings us out the other end of our troubles. It doesn't always mean God takes our troubles away. Certainly in Paul's case, God didn't take the trouble away. But he showed his power by bringing Paul out the other end. Earlier we mentioned some of the things that we can do to be channels of God's comfort. We can listen and be a companion and pray. In verse 11, Paul asks the Corinthians to pray for him. And there's something else that we can do. I think it's something that we don't put enough value on. We can come here on Sunday. We can stand beside our brothers and sisters And we can lift up our eyes together to the God who raises the dead. We can enter into worship together as a united body of people. People who are full of peace and joy, standing alongside those who are struggling. We call this corporate worship for a good reason. It's not like going to the cinema. At least it's not supposed to be. Corporate worship means we worship together. When we do that, when we're actively listening together and singing together, and we say amen to the prayers, we're not just doing something that fills up an hour on Sunday morning. We are testifying together to the reality of God's power. We, as a body of believers, are encouraging one another in the truth that God is bigger than our hardships and struggles. As we sing and listen and pray together, we're being channels of God's comfort to one another. That's what Paul is doing here. He's testifying to the reality of God's power. You and I do that by getting out of bed, coming together here and worshiping God. Elsewhere, Paul says that when we worship God, we're not only worshiping God. We're speaking to one another about God, about his worthiness and greatness. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So please don't opt out of the singing. It's not just about you and me and our favorite songs. It's about you being a channel of God's comfort to others through the songs. Now we certainly need home groups where we listen to one another and pray with one another. We need time for conversations at the end of our services. And we need to be together as one body of wholehearted worshippers. As a body of people, we need to be honest about our own weaknesses. And we need to be clear about God's power. And when a brother or sister is delivered from some struggle, we can stand with them then too and praise God for his deliverance. That's how Paul closes this section. As the Corinthians pray... And as Paul experiences God's power, then, verse 11, many will give thanks on our behalf 
for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. In a few moments, we're going to remember at this table that God showed his power through the weakness of the cross. But first, we're going to sing to God and to one another. And the song is, Come, People of the Risen King. <clears throat> 